Daniel receives another wild dream that helps us understand God's perspective on the kingdoms of men. That's next on Abounding Grace. God gave Daniel this dream for the sake of understanding his perspective on the kingdoms of men. Challenging your perspective on the kingdoms of men. Because I'm certain there are people listening to me today that have put their hope and their trust in a president or a governmental system or a country. And I'm here to remind you that only King Jesus is worthy of that level of trust in your life. Politics won't save you. Government won't save you. Systems won't save you. Only Jesus Christ saves. This is amazing grace. The book of Daniel is packed with prophecies, some that have already been fulfilled, but there are also some prophecies that will be fulfilled one day, perhaps in the not too distant future. We're in for an exciting study today on abounding grace. The prophet is about to receive a series of visions and dreams. It points to four great world empires leading up to Christ's return and the kingdom to come. One of them is an end times kingdom that will involve a world leader known as the Antichrist. Let's hear all about it now as we turn things over to Pastor Ed Taylor. We're in Daniel 7. You think you woke up with some crazy thing that you dreamt. Imagine Daniel receiving this and the things that he saw and the importance of having to write them down. I already mentioned that the sea, the great sea, is the Mediterranean. You can see that by referencing Revelation 17, uh, verses 1 and 15. And the great sea, the Mediterranean sea, has a picture and a type. It represents the nations of the world, the mass of humanity, primarily of the Gentile world and the Gentile nations. And the wind represents here God's power expressed in judgment using both heavenly and earthly forces from all directions to influence the nations as he wills. And it's interesting, too, as you study through the scriptures, that of the 120 references of wind in the Bible, about 90 in the Old Testament, 30 in the New, well over half of them are related to events and ideas reflecting the sovereignty of God. If there's anything that will build your faith and trust in the living God, it is having a healthy understanding of his power or his sovereign control. That God is sovereign and he does as he wills. And we do well to submit to him and surrender to him. And so notice in the beginning in verse 4, the first beast. The first beast was a lion and he had these eagle wings. This beast corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's interesting because in archaeological discoveries, the national symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. And here he has a picture in his dream of huge winged lions. And even the royal Babylonian palaces were guarded by these lions with wings. And it says here that her wings were pulled off and was lifted up from the earth. It has a, an interesting insight on what happened in Nebuchadnezzar when he was caught up in his pride. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the lesson that he learned, and the lesson that Belshazzar learned after him, was that God is able to bring down the proud. And even as I've been having discussions with the team here, the pastors here in the last couple of days, I couldn't help, as I was talking to them about various things over the years, I couldn't help but remember in many ways, in little small ways, but in a, in a very large way, how God dealt with me in pride that was in my life. And I can speak, I, I mean, I know I believe in the authority of the Bible, and in no way do I want to undermine the Bible's teaching. But by way of experience, I can assure you that God knows how to deal with pride in our lives. That even if you today, you know, maybe in your pride, think, well, I'm not, you know, one of the first signs of pride is that when someone points it out to you and you, you respond, I'm not prideful, okay, you should receive. You know, if you got a lot of different people coming to talk to you, maybe people aren't talking to you and avoiding you completely because they know you won't receive it. Pride in its, all its manifestations is a dangerous thing in the believer's relationship, in our relationship with God. And like Nebuchadnezzar, fortunately for me, it wasn't as dramatic as the experience of Nebuchadnezzar it wasn't as dramatic that God would need to bring the writing on the wall in my life. But certainly in a metaphorical way, we all see the writing on the wall. God wants our attention. He's attracted, God is, to humility. He loves to hang out with the humble. And he, the Bible says, resist the proud. But he's a giver of grace to the humble. And it's so encouraging to me. They learned. And, and if... Today you're listening to me and this is a word of warning or you're like totally filled with pride today. So much so that you're mad at me for even mentioning it. Understand, God is able to bring down those who are proud. And when it comes to humbling yourself, there's two primary choices that you and I have. We can choose to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and the promise is that he'll lift us up or God will humble you. And they're both painful processes. That admission and repentance of the sin of pride is a difficult, painful process. Even in the, in the process of perhaps God ripping it out of you and showing it to you and seeing yourself in the mirror or the conviction of God's word or family trying to rescue you. You know, it could even get so bad that the, your family sees it so much that they call an intervention on you and a surprise meeting to confront you with the issues in your life. It, it's painful. But it is far more painful when God humbles you and brings humility into your life. It's much better for us to choose that. If we won't walk in humility, then we will crawl like Nebuchadnezzar in humiliation. And just as Nebuchadnezzar came, became an animal for seven years, when we see this, there is this pulling off, this wrenching of the wings of the first beast that represents the Babylonian kingdom. Verse 5. The next thing that Daniel saw in his dream, the second beast, was a bear. And it had three ribs in its mouth. This corresponds to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar of the chest, of arms, chest and arms of silver. And the combination of the two formed a new ruling empire. Why are they described like a bear? Well, they had become very large and huge and massive with an army over two and a half million fighting men. And that was strong, but it was also slow and sluggish. 
And the three ribs speak of the three ruling empires they conquered on the way to rule, including Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon. And they did arise in each much, much flesh in their victories. The reference of being stronger on one side than on the other reflects the great strength of the Persians in the empire. And remember, too, that when Daniel had his dream, the Babylonian empire was still in existence. So it's possible that these nations, as Daniel was dreaming this, were less prominent than they became. It was in an earlier stage. Notice the next one in verse 6. The third of these strange beasts looked like a leopard. It had four wings and four heads. This represents the kingdom of Greece. This was the belly and the thigh of brass or bronze in Nebuchadnezzar. This was the swift movement of a leader by the name of Alexander the Great. The four wings on the leopard's back made it even move faster. That was his strength. The strength of the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great was not in its numbers, but it's in his tenacity and, it's, and his, his scheming and his battle plans. And I quote, With the swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered most of the civilized world all the way from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. The lightning character of his conquests is without precedent in the ancient world. And this is fully keeping in with the image of the speed embodied by the leopard himself with the four wings on its back. And when the Grecian Empire was divided, the four wings, the four heads, represent the four generals that took over after the suicide of Alexander the Great. Because history and tradition tells us that at the end of his conquering, when he looked around and saw that there was nothing else to conquer, it depressed Alexander so great that he committed suicide. It just didn't satisfy. There's a lot to be said here. Let me quote one of the historians most modern commentators think that the Lysimachus, who ruled Thrace and Bithynia, Cassander, Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus, Syria, Babylonia and the Eastern territories, and Ptolemy ruled Egypt, Palestine and the Arabia Petraea. Each of these successors ruled one of the geographic divisions of Alexander's empire, Greece, Western Asia, Egypt and Persia. The exact identification of the rulers is still debatable because it took about 20 years for the kingdom to be successfully divided. One of the purposes of sharing some of these historical facts with you is to remind you that the Bible in its truthfulness is rooted in time and history. And not only is it rooted in time and history, but enough information is given that you can test the Bible from history. You can test the truths to see if they came, came to pass. And notice the final beast in verse 7 is the fourth one. This was a dreadful and terrible looking beast that was very strong, devouring, it says in verse 7, and crushing its victims with huge iron teeth, trampling the remains under its feet. And it was different than any other beasts with these ten horns. This is, corresponds uh, to the Roman Empire and what Nebuchadnezzar saw with the legs of iron. And the teeth of iron devouring and breaking in pieces, the Roman Empire was the first empire that conquered and ruled and was described as ruling with an iron fist. Daniel didn't compare this beast with any modern equivalent. It was unique in every way, truly dreadful, 
terrifying and extremely strong. Let me quote, the Roman Empire was ruthless in its destruction of civilizations and peoples, killing captives by the thousands and selling them into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. Rome had no interest in raising the conquered nations to any high level of development. All her designs were imperial in nature. Let the nations be crushed and stamped underfoot. Which brings us to verse 8. If you think the dream wasn't enough, verse 8, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another horn, small horn, appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So the horns with a little horn rising up is that end times kingdom. Ten toes that were mixed with iron and clay in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this differs a little bit with this little horn because back in, in verse 8 you see he notices this eleventh horn rising up among the ten that displaced three of the ten horns. The horn had human eyes probably symbolic of intelligence, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And quite clearly, this is a picture of the coming world leader known as the Antichrist. Daniel saw another little horn in a vision that he reported having in this section. And however, the differences between the two little horns argue for being different rulers. And so it takes a little bit more study on these things. But notice, from what Daniel records, it seems clear that he saw something happening in the courts of heaven. It says in verse 9, I watched as the thrones were put in place, and the ancient ones sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. He gets his picture into the heavenly realms. His hair purest wool sat on a fiery throne, wheels of blazing fire. A river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Millions, many millions stood to attend him. And the court began its session and the books were open. Referring to God as the ancient one or the ancient of days speaks to us of God's purity and eternality and his holiness on his throne. And the end of all the prior three empires contrasts with the end of this fourth one. God took away the dominion of each of the earlier three kingdoms one by one but they continued to exist as elements in the kingdom that followed them for some time. However, God will cut off the fourth empire and it will continue no longer. It will end of it itself. Verse 11, I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. Verse 12, the other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. And then in verses 13 and 14, what happens? Daniel gets another view of the heavenly scene. Someone like, one like the Son of Man was brought before the Ancient of Days. It says, notice, my vision continued that night. I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approaches the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race, nation, and language would obey him. And his rule is eternal. It'll never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The angelic attendants perhaps courting him in and bringing him in. And the description glorifies the ancient one of days and then proceeds to give this person authority to rule on the earth. One like the son of man similarities with human being as the, as the son of man title implies. And yet he comes with the clouds of heaven. 
which elsewhere in Scripture describe God coming to earth, like the Son of Man appears to be a God-man. And this is all back in Daniel. We're not in the New Testament yet, giving us insight of the coming Messiah and how God already, before, before the doctrine of, of the Trinity is fully developed in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus did destroy, well, we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus destroy the Roman Empire in his first coming, yes or no? He didn't come as a destroyer. That was the frustrating part of the people and the expectation of the Jewish people in his first coming. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And in all of the difficulties that we see in our own form of government, in our own country, and even the countries around the world, doesn't come close to the Roman Empire of the first century. Doesn't come close to the oppression and the absolute imperialism and evilness. Remember, it was the Romans that perfected crucifixion. They perfected the torturous killing of people. It wasn't, even, it wasn't a tool invented by them. They just took a tool that the Persians invented and perfected it. Why? To send a message to anyone that crossed Rome. And the message was very simple. It could be said in a lot of different ways, but I think it would be summarized this way. Don't mess with Rome. And it was the very invention and perfection of crucifixion that was prophesied and predicted in the Psalms before it was even invented would be the method according to the scriptures that Messiah would be killed. It was mentioned in the Bible before it was even invented. So we know that in chapter 7, and we'll finish up the chapter next time, we know in this dream that it's pointing to a future kingdom. Not in the first coming of Jesus Christ, but prophetically pointing to his second coming. And if there is a lack in the body of Christ today, I mean, there's a few, lack, there's a few things that are lacking in the body of Christ today. First of all, there is a lack of prayer and support for the nation of Israel. That much of the church has turned their back on Israel. And a wicked doctrine known as replacement theology has taken its place. So that now there's this thought that God's dealings with the nation of Israel are over and done. They've lost their chance and God will not give them another chance. And now God has replaced them with the church. That's, that's a simple summary of replacement theology. So that now the church has replaced Israel. So all of the promises that were made to Israel are now conveyed somehow to the church. Falsehood in every sense of the word. Israel is a distinct entity that prophetically fulfilled prophecy when they came back and are currently day by day coming back to live in the land of Israel, even as I speak right now. People getting off the plane with Aliyah to live in Israel because in the last days God said he will bring his people back, number one. Number two, there are many promises given distinctly to the people of Israel that are yet to be fulfilled, that I believe biblically will be fulfilled in the last seven years of human history. Do you know what the last seven years of human history is called in the Bible? The Great Tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble. And God will turn his attention 
away from the church. This is the time period where God has turned his attention, is gathering men and women, primarily Gentiles, into salvation. And you know, the church is a distinct entity. You really have three distinct entities from God's perspective. You have Gentiles, and then you have the church that are made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. Very distinct in their relationship. And as you see things unfold, you will see the predictions of God to take care of and fulfill all the promises that are yet to be fulfilled to the distinct nation of Israel. And so we know here in chapter 7 that this is not speaking of the first coming of Jesus Christ because now we look back and we can see that in the first coming, Jesus did not overthrow the Roman Empire. In his first coming, Jesus came not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And he came as the sacrifice, complete for your sins and mine. This is a prophetic pointing of the second coming of Jesus Christ to initiate the fifth kingdom that destroys the fourth. And I just say as we head out, I don't know what kind of dream you're going to have today. I don't know if this might even stir up things and you're going to email me this week. Man, Ed, I had the wildest dream. These beasts are here and I don't know and I couldn't sleep. Thank you very much for that Bible study. But whatever, whatever dream you have, it will not compare to what God gave Daniel. Because God gave Daniel this dream for the sake of understanding his perspective on the kingdoms of men. Challenging your perspective on the kingdoms of men. Because I'm certain there are people listening to me today that have put their hope and their trust in a president or a governmental system or a country. And I'm here to remind you that only King Jesus is worthy of that level of trust in your life. Politics won't save you. Government won't save you. Systems won't save you. Only Jesus Christ saves and if you will take the time and energy and effort to invest and devote yourself into the eternal, if you will choose today to lose your life, you will gain not only your life, but also eternal life. But if you seek to keep your life, to hold on to it with all that you have, to build a little kingdom, to ignore prophetic warnings and insights, to listen to this Bible study and just say, oh yeah, whatever, Daniel. Dan, you don't believe in Daniel and the lion. You don't believe in Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace. You don't believe in all the prophecies. For anyone that would ever ask me that, I'll just give you the answer up front. The answer is yes, yes, yes. I believe in everything that the Bible says, especially Daniel and all that Daniel has to say because Jesus declared that Daniel was a prophet and in his writings, he was prophetically accurate. And if it's good enough for Jesus Christ, it's certainly good enough for me and good enough for you. Pastor Ed Taylor is developing his study of Daniel right now on Abounding Grace. Thanks for taking part in today's Bible study. To hear it again, visit our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com, or you can hear us through our app. Simply search for Calvary Aurora in the App Store or Google Play and download the free app today. We couldn't be more excited about the resource we picked out for you this month. It's a book by Max Lucado called In the Grip of Grace. The message of the world is try harder and work smarter. 
You've got it in you. You can do it. But the message of the Bible is something entirely different. In essence, we're told, stop striving and being self-sufficient, but rather land in the arms of a God who loves you and be refreshed by His grace. Dive deep into the riches of God's grace as you read, In the Grip of Grace. And we'll gladly send you a copy when you support Abounding Grace today with a gift of $25 or more. Just pick up the phone right now and call 877-30-GRACE. We want this radio ministry to be the sort of ministry that God uses, too. And that's our prayer. It's our heart's desire. If you'd like to get behind what we're doing and offer a one-time gift or ongoing support, we would sure appreciate it. This would be a good time to hear from you. You can donate to the ministry at AboundingGraceRadio.com or, again, call 877-30-GRACE. Ed Taylor is the pastor at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado, and we invite you to join us online for a service. Whether you live hundreds of miles away, you're out of town on vacation, or sick and can't leave your home, the live stream is always there for you. Go online to calvaryco.church, Saturdays at 6 p.m., Sundays at 8.45 and 10.45 in the morning. There's a midweek service, too, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Again, we're at calvaryco.church. And then look for online campus. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But come back next time when Pastor Ed Taylor will resume our series in Daniel on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.